Church Extension Ministries is your mission that seeks to evangelize and plant new Bible fellowship churches. We are the mission that concentrates and is dedicated to reaching people with the gospel and serving the Bible Fellowship Church with a focus on expanding, carrying out the vision statement of the Bible Fellowship Church, expanding the Bible Fellowship Church. And I believe that's only, there's only one way that that can be done, and that is through evangelistic church planting. If you take notice at this opening screen here, there's one operative word on here, and it's on the bottom sentence here. It says, your, your BFC evangelistic church planting mission. These, these church planters that I'm about to introduce you to are your church planters. They are sacrificially, solely dedicated and concentrated on expanding the Bible Fellowship Church. They're not with any other mission boards. They're not, they don't have mixed attentions and so forth. They are solely called to expand the Bible Fellowship Church through evangelistic church planting. It is vital that we realize that. And the reason I say it's vital is because America is a mission field. Do you believe that? If you do, say amen. America is a mission field. Today, I left Adamstown, and in my little development over there, there's probably about 62 homes. On my one hand, I can count how many are going to, how many of those homes are packing up their families and going to church this morning. America, George Barna says, has a 60 to 70 percent unchurched rate in America, unchurched percentage of Americans that are not going to be in church. 60 to 70 percent of Americans will not be in church today. And you know that. In the developments you live, in the places you, you live, you can go around and you can realize that probably six out of ten people within those homes, within your sphere of uh, influence, will not be in church today. There are going to be more churches this year closing than opening. Probably anywhere between 1,000 and 1,500 churches uh, will close this year, and probably only half of that will, new ones will open. The average evangelical church in America will see, according again to George Barna and some others, Lyle Schaller, will see one conversion growth per year. One conversion growth. America is a mission field. Look around. And I could go on and on and on with statistics. These men I'm about to introduce you to, even though Church Extension now has the wonderful privilege of reaching out to groups, missionaries, associations throughout the world and introducing them to the BFC and bringing them in, international churches into the BFC. We, fought, we brought our first international church into the BFC four years ago, and that was the La Roca Bible Fellowship Church in Merida, Mexico. And I just, tomorrow, I should say Tuesday, excuse me, our Joint Committee on Ethnic Church Planning will be meeting to look at their proposal for planting a daughter church. There may be another mission church in the Bible Fellowship Church in Via Magna, which is a, a town right outside the city of Merida. We have churches planting churches. And oh, by the way, congratulations. Do you usually put a, a rose on the organ when there's a birth in the, in the, in the church? Is that your practice? Or how do you, how do you recognize new births in the church? Yeah, a rose in the organ or whatever. I, I was going to bring along two roses to put on the organ this morning. Congratulations, you've had two babies in the last month. Now, how does that happen, right? Well, the Bible Fellowship Church has birthed two new mission churches. The Board of Church Extension has approved the opening of the new mission church in Lower Providence Township, Pennsylvania, 
which is headed up by Scott Wright. Uh, Lower Providence is on the way to Valley Forge down at 422 Cut and the Trooper Audubon near King of Prussia area. And Scott is already meeting with 35, 40 people in a home to launch that church eventually in a public launching. That's your first baby that just was born about a month ago. Lower Providence Township Mission Church. Your second baby that was just born last week, the Board of Church Extension approved the opening of a mission church in the greater Townsend, Delaware area. And that is near Smyrna, Middletown, Townsend. They're all kind of worked together there, Odessa. And Ron Smith will be heading up that church planting, that new mission church there in Delaware. Both of these churches, this is exciting to say, both of these churches, these new mission churches, are daughter churches. The Newark, Delaware Bible Fellowship Church has launched this uh, new daughter church with Ron Smith in uh, Townsend, Smyrna, Middletown area, and the Harleysville Bible Fellowship Church, along with some of the other churches in the Bucksmont region, have considered what Scott Wright is doing in Lower Providence Township as a daughter church. I just received word from Wallingford and Woodbury Heights. Now, Woodbury Heights, you may realize, is a, is a brand new church in the BFC. We just received them last year. Dan Williams is the pastor there. Dick Taylor and Dan Williams are working with their elder boards to come together to look at the possibility of planting a combined daughter church between the two of them in Swedesboro, New Jersey. A real ripe area for a church like the Bible Fellowship Church. I've been working with the metro region over in New Jersey about the concept of planting a daughter church, that region planting a daughter church in South Amboy, New Jersey. God is really working his plan out that saw the church expand in the first century and even during some of our eras in the Bible Fellowship Church, some of our greatest growth eras came when churches planted churches. And now we're starting to see God raise that up by his spirit in our churches in the Bible Fellowship Church. And that's exciting. So please pray for that. I'd like to introduce you to our, our team here. Elliot Ramos is part of our Hispanic church planting team. He, along with, I'll show you later, Miguel Gonzalez and Carlos Rodriguez are planting among Hispanic people groups. And now we also, and hopefully you're aware of this, hopefully you're praying for this, because this is in your region, the capital region of the Bible Fellowship Church. Uh, we got together and formed uh, uh, a church planting resource team. Miguel Gonzalez is heading that up. And they are looking at our third Hispanic church plant in the city of Lancaster. Representatives from all the churches, various churches in the capital region are meeting together once a month to look into, do the demographics, and see if we can plant a Hispanic, daughter, a Hispanic church in the city of Lancaster. So please pray for that, the Hispanic church planting resource team in Lancaster. On the bottom there, Aaron Sussick. You should be familiar with him. He's also a part of your region down here in Adams County. Him and his family, and God is blessing down there. Uh, Keith Strunk is a brand new church planner. He's no longer an intern, so I've got to redo these slides already. They keep going out of date almost uh, uh, weekly. Uh, he's no longer an intern. He's fully called to be the church planter in Cape May County or Cape May Courthouse uh, down in New Jersey. And so he has started full-time. He's doing a wonderful job, and already we've seen some new families come in, and God is really working through him. And we want to thank Mark Morrison, my assistant, for the many years he traveled back and forth diligently serving there to keep this 
to keep this uh, church plant afloat. And now it's becoming viable and moving ahead. So praise God for that. Mark Barninger uh, has petitioned, I should say, the Freedom uh, uh, Hanover Township uh, Mission Church has petitioned church extension to graduate next year. And so I have a meeting with them Tuesday night, their transitional leadership team out there, to talk about graduation. At the end here, I'll show you what it takes to graduate and become a particular church in the BFC. Uh, Carlos Rodriguez and Miguel Gonzalez worked together as a team. Miguel now also is not an intern anymore. He's an assistant church planter to Carlos. And these two have just been a dynamic team uh, reaching people in the city of Reading. And Reading is just... I grew up in Reading, and it's, it's just amazingly becoming a totally Hispanic city. School district, 72, 73 percent. The city itself, 50 to 60 percent. Uh, we are just so blessed to have a God lead us uh, to these men and these men to us to plant Bible fellowship churches among Hispanics because America, as, as Elliot would say, we're taking over. <laughs> And so we really need to be on this cutting edge of reaching people with the gospel among the Hispanic communities. Uh, in, in La Roca, there's probably seven or eight sub Hispanic subgroups, uh, Latin Americans, South Americans, Caribbean, uh, I should say Latin Hispanics, South American Hispanics, Caribbean Hispanics, all over the place. And it's just a wonderful thing that God's doing there, this multicultural Hispanic church that's really growing and thriving. Carlos came here six years ago, seven years ago. Didn't know anybody in the city of Reading. And this afternoon at 1 o'clock, they'll probably be worshiping with anywhere from 130 to 150 Hispanic people. So we praise God for that. And Miguel, as I said, is heading up the church planting resource team, along with Mark Morrison, in the capital region to look at a church plant, a Hispanic church plant in Lancaster. So pray for them, please. Uh, David Smith <coughs> is a connectional uh, mission church that we have connected with in Harrisburg. It's a multicultural church. It's an exciting church. If you ever get out there, visit with David. You'll, you'll really appreciate this church. It's a group of Afro-Americans, a group of whites, and um, a group of Hispanic people, and uh, all uh, different variations of Afro-Americans, too, Caribbean and, 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 and American Afro-Americans. But also, I was out there about a month ago, and I saw this contingency of about eight or nine people sitting, young people sitting over in one side. And having taught in, in Eastern Europe, I can usually tell the, the countenance of an Eastern European. I said, they've got to be Eastern Europeans or Russians or whatever. And uh, afterwards, I went over and introduced myself, started talking to them. These are young Ukrainians, a group of eight or nine young Ukrainians that really have a vision for what David is trying to do. He's trying to go into the city of Harrisburg and uniquely form a multicultural church. And that's exciting. And these Ukrainians have caught that vision. And even one of them now are being considered to be a deacon as such. But it's an exciting work, and if you ever get out that way, please visit it. On the bottom is our... Uh, one of our new babies that were just born, and that is the work down in Audubon, Trooper area, uh, the Lower Providence Township Mission Church, Scott Wright and his family. Scott was the assistant pastor at Harleysville Bible Fellowship Church, and the church sent him out to plant this church. So please pray for him and create some partnerships with these new fellows. I, I just, uh, in this week's Antiochian, and by the way, how many of you get our weekly email report, the Antiochian report? Raise your hands. 
How, all right, now put your hands down. Now, how many of you have email? Put your hands up. How many of you have email? Come on, I know more of you have email than that. Put your hands up. Okay. You all should get our Antiochian report. So on the way out, my display is right there in the narthex. Please stop by, put your name and email address, and you can keep up with what's going on here. It's exciting stuff and really blessed stuff to pray for and become involved with. Uh, so Scott is one of those new fellows down there, and he really needs your prayers too as he gets started. Uh, Ron Smith is the other. Ron is a graduate of Lehigh University in chemical engineering, graduate of Biblical Seminary, and then about two years ago, God just placed it on his heart. He's, he's a very successful uh, chem, uh, chemical sales individual with a company. And uh, God has placed it on his heart that he's calling him to plant a church. And uh, he started to attend the Newark, Delaware Bible Fellowship Church, cast his vision there. They caught it. And now he's opening this new mission in uh, Townsend. And Ron will be giving up this chemical career in about a year. He's going to work the first year bivocational. And then he's going to be going full-time at the church planting down there. Of course, these are our recent graduates. You might remember them from last year. Dan Williams and, of course, Tim Zook, you would know. He's one of your own. And they're out on their own now. Now, what does it mean to graduate a mission church to become a particular church in the BFC? Three criteria. Number one, identifying elders. We need at least two men identified who are qualified to be elders in the Bible Fellowship Church. Number two, identifying committed participant. We need at least 20 family units that are going to agree to become the charter members of the church and support the church and help develop it. And then thirdly, now this third criteria we never had before up until about two years ago. We instituted this third criteria so we didn't end up with churches in our department. We are commissioned and charged to plant new churches, not maintenance churches. And so now, when a church or when a mission church has to graduate, it has to be uh, financially self-supporting, like uh, uh, Hellertown and Woodbury Heights were. They were fully financially self-supporting, able to support their pastor, able to support their ministry. And so that's the third criteria. And uh, fortunately enough, we have at least one this year that will be graduating next year, and that will be, uh, hopefully, Lord willing, Hanover Township, uh, where Mark Farninger is. So that's your church planting mission. Pray for your church planting mission and your church planters. Pray for church extension ministries. And I'm so privileged to be able to share that with you. I'll be back at the table after we uh, dismiss this morning. And if you have any questions, please feel free to stop back there and talk with me about it. Also, please stop by and get your name on our Antiochian newsletter. You really will appreciate the information that's given on that. Thank you so much. <clears throat> now I'd like you to turn into your scriptures, the Word of God, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We read this in our scripture reading, and we did read the right translation, too, the New American Standard, so that's good. <laughs> when I first was a Christian, <coughs> this was uh, one of the first books that I ever read as a Christian. And when I read these first nine verses, they really confused me. Because I went on to read from verse 10 on, and I wondered how in the world could God, through the Apostle Paul, 
characterize the church at Corinth the way he did in the first nine verses and yet go on and condemn it and point out all its fallacies, all its immoralities, all its divisiveness in the next 14 chapters. What was Paul looking at when he wrote these words in chapter 1, verses 1 through 9? What church was he looking at? Could he possibly have been looking at the church in Corinth and characterizing it the way he did? Well, for better understanding, let's just go to the passage again and read it once again. And I'm going to emphasize some things through the first nine verses here. Paul, called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sophonies, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord, and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech, all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you were not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to stop there. Father in heaven, these are amazing statements about a church so vile. What was the Apostle Paul looking at, Lord? He must have been looking at the same thing that you look at when you see your church church that is filled with clean possessions by virtue of the blood of Jesus Christ. And because they are clean possessions, they're called of you and they're sanctified even in their sin. A church that also, Father, because of its position in Christ, receives many blessings, receives grace upon grace, so, Father, in this day and age, when the church is, as we sung earlier, looked upon with scorn and ridicule because of assumed heresies and divisions and divisiveness, the church of Jesus Christ, that invisible church that those of us who are born again are part of, must hold high the glory of the church of Jesus and refrain from falling prey to the scorn, persecutions, words that are set against this holy and sanctified body. May we leave here today, Lord, maybe by Your Spirit's grace and working in our hearts and minds, may we leave today having a higher view of the church of Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. I don't know what your opinion of an ideal church is. Some of us might have the opinion that an ideal church is where everybody's friendly. Everybody gets along with everybody. There's great greetings at the doors. There's great greetings at the exit. And, uh, and you know, everybody's just 
really good with each other. There's no divisiveness. There's no backbiting. There's no bad things being said. There's no countenances that are sad. Others of us may have the opinion that an ideal church is where the pastor is eloquent. He's a good preacher. Does things right. According to everything that I want him to do. He's a good man for the pulpit. And that's the ideal church. Another portion of us may think that the ideal church is that church that uh, has every program available to meet the needs of my family. Where when I walk in, all I need to do is look on the marquee and I can see where my, this child's going and that child's going, where I'm going, and they got this recovery group and that recovery group and everything else happening in the church. Some other of us uh, may even think that the ideal church is the church that looks good. The landscaping is meticulous. You know, the building is wonderful. All the halls are painted uh, properly and so forth. And it's just a pretty place to bring people into. Well, the moment we start to have aspirations of the ideal church or visions of the ideal church, the old adage comes into play, doesn't it? Because there is no church that is ideal because people like you and me are part of the church, which makes it less than ideal. And yet, according to these first, at least the first seven verses that we read, but even the first nine verses, according to what Paul is looking at here, he's not looking at an ideal church by any stretch of the imagination in Corinth, humanly speaking. But he gives such glowing terms to the church. Why can he do this? Because he sees the church as God sees his church. He sees the church as having been bought by the blood of Christ, robed in the righteousness of Jesus, and a church that will be conformed to the image of his Son. He sees the church in Jesus Christ. And therefore, he has a high view of the church, even though the church is running amok in all its sin and its all its immorality. And all its divisiveness. Yes, from the human side of things, all churches are experiencing problems. They go through difficulties. They go through times of difficulties. They go through it even at the hymn, 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 yeah, the hymn writer says here in this wonderful, wonderful hymn that we first sung, Hymn 200, it caught my eye as we were going through it. Though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping. See, we are to have our eyes on what God has his eyes on in the church. We are to have our eyes on that invisible church that you and I make up. And now I'm just going to stop for a second and humor me so we make sure we know what church we're talking about. I'd like you, if you're born again this morning, you know you're a believer, you know you believe in Jesus Christ, you know he saved you from his sins, I want you to raise your hand and put your index finger up in the air. Go ahead, humor me. I know I'm in Stoic, Lebanon County, and I can say that because I'm a Pennsylvania Dutchman too. Okay, put your finger up, and now put it on your chest. And repeat these words with me. I am the church. Ready? I am the church. So you know who the church is, right? Okay. All right. God sees the church as you and I making up this body that's been bought and paid for by the blood of Christ, that's been robed in the righteousness of Christ, and that has as its living hope, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will one day come and take His church home. And therefore, if God sees the church like that, you and I must see the church like that also. 
John Calvin put it this way. He said, So highly does the Lord esteem the communion of His saints that He considers everyone a traitor and apostate. Strong words. A traitor and apostate who perversely withdraws himself from any Christian body that preserves the true ministry of the Word. We must have a high view of the church of Jesus Christ. Because we are the church. Although we may not sense the the perfections of the church here and now in this earth, they do exist. They exist not only in the mind of God, but they exist in reality in the heavenlies above. Even Ephesians talks about when we are born again, that we are seated in the heavenlies already. That it's just a matter of time and circumstances and logistics here on earth that God makes us, will make us realize our seating in the heavenlies with Jesus Christ. But even though there's cracks in the church, and not everything fits together perfectly here on earth, God sees the church as His own possession. And that possession as being holy and sacred and called of Him. That's what Paul is writing to us here. And because of that position, that called and sanctified position, God is then able to bestow upon us, as John writes in John chapter 1, where grace abounds and abounds and abounds to us. Those are the two things I'd like to look at in this passage this morning. I'd like to look at, first of all, God's church as being filled with clean vessels, called and sanctified. And secondly, I'd like to look at this point that Paul brings out here in this particular passage as all the church being filled and as the objects of favor. All the church, the clean possessions of God, and all the church as objects of His favor. So let's look at verses 2 and 3 here again. To the church of God, which is at Corinth. And I want to read that to you the way it sounds in the original. Uh, You might glance over that in the English here. Because there's an emphasis on the second clause here. To the church of God, which is at Corinth. In the original, that which is at Corinth is almost a separate clause. And it's a sarcastic clause. And it, it sounds almost like this when you study it a little bit in the original. To the church of God... Even the church at Corinth. So it has a sarcastic type tint to it. To the church of God, even the church at Corinth. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified and later on in that sentence called. See, even the church at Corinth, with everything that was going on in it, When God looked upon it, in seeing the mark of the robe of righteousness of Christ upon it, enveloping it, it's not that God ignores the sin, far from it, and it's not the Apostle Paul is ignoring the sin either. But he realizes that the church which is at Corinth, this invisible body of believers that makes up the body of Christ at Corinth, these people are sanctified and called. Every church where two or three are gathered. In spite, you might say, in a holy spite, you might say, of the sin that that church might fall into, God sees it robed in the righteousness of Christ. And therefore, the Apostle Paul can write to the church even at Corinth who is sanctified and called. Called. It's God's church. 
You are God's church. God called us. We didn't become a part of the church by effort of ourselves, by merit that we joined an organization, that we had to go through an indoctrination or, or evaluation to become a member of. God called us. This is His church, God's church. God called each and every one of us who are born again to be part of that church. We are the called of God. Secondly, we are saints by calling also. If you look at that particular statement in verse 2 there again. Who have been sanctified. See, that's what, that's what baffled me when I was a young Christian. This was the most baffling statement in the Bible when I was a young Christian. The Corinthians who are sanctified? Saints by calling? Wait a second, Paul. You're not looking at the same church I am. But Paul is looking at the church. He's looking at, within the Corinthian church, there were saints by calling. Now see, if you, if you put the theological logic together here, you understand this then. The reason Paul can call these Corinthians sanctified is because God has a purpose in sanctifying a sinner. God wants a people called to Himself to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Therefore, in order for God to work with anybody, any sinner, He must first regenerate them and call them to Himself through Jesus Christ. They need to be made holy. And that's really what the word sanctified means. It means set apart unto holiness. Now, I broke it down into three other considerations here. Sanctified means a sacred vessel which is clean before God, being in Christ, I am clean. So when I'm called and sanctified, I'm clean. That's what Romans 8.1 says. There is now no more condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. I don't need to be looking over my shoulder anymore. There's no sword hanging above me, ready to hit me with judgment, with condemnation, I should say. God has no longer put His condemnation on my life when He saves me, when He calls me, when He sanctifies me. Sanctified means that I'm clean. That I'm right before God in Christ, not of my own. Secondly, sanctified means that we're set apart. And we're set apart unto service. I no longer live for me, but I live sacrificially. Sanctified means I'm set apart to live sacrificially for God. And thirdly, sanctified means, as I've been implying, means I'm holy. Oh, I don't feel holy at times. The Corinthians certainly wouldn't have felt holy at times. And you don't feel holy at times, especially when you're sinning and you're not wanting to do anything about it. That's not holy. But in Christ... You are holy, and you have all the availability to do something about that sin that you don't let it master over you. You have been sanctified. Now, you know, one of the most difficult things for a pastor, I found when I pastored for 16 years, one of the most, and even now, I guess you could say that I'm kind of a surrogate pastor to these nine church plants and so forth, and I get intimately involved when there are situations that, our planter, your planters face there with sin and stuff among their people. But that's the biggest heartache in the pastorate, to see the church in sin. The biggest heartache. You know, when Paul received back the reports from Corinth, 
from the delegation that had been sent there to see what kind of condition the church was and also the reports from Chloe's household that came back to him. His heart must have been broken. Now, I know, some, I know when I was an early, a young pastor, my heart would get broken over sin and I get, you know, some, some pastors, get, their hearts get broken and they get passive. Well, my personality is not like that. When my heart gets broken over sin, I get angry. And I would get angry at people. And I had to remember that people, Christians, are a work in progress. And I had to learn to switch my anger from the sinner to the devil, who is the author of sin. And that helped me a lot, especially as a pastor. Anthony Hokema writes this in his wonderful book, uh, Saved by Grace. Holiness is more than a state. For believers, sanctification is both a definitive act, positional, and a lifelong process, progressive. Even in Colossians 2, verse 7, I love the way Paul puts that idea of we are sanctified in position and also in progressive progress as we move along in our Christian life. Uh, Paul puts it this way in Colossians 2, verse 7. He says, we are firmly rooted, firmly rooted positional sanctification, yet we are being built up. Progressive sanctification. You see, Paul was looking at a church, at Christians within the church. He got this report back. His heart, heart must have been broken. But in order to be able to write this letter to them, and especially this introduction, he had to be focusing on what sanctification meant, what the calling of the Christian meant, and that these Christians, even though they had fell prey to sin and divisiveness and immorality, some of them, he had to focus on, in other words, if he didn't, he wouldn't have been able to help them. He had to focus on their position in Jesus Christ and this availability of the Holy Spirit to work in them so that they get back on track and progressively work towards being that Christian that God wants them to be. And may I say to any one of you here this morning who's born again and who might be involved in sin, that's not the end. It hasn't ruined you if you truly are born again. Forgiveness from God is available. And you are a saint by calling. You're positioned in Christ. And the power of the almighty God of the universe will help you out of sin and move you ahead on that trek to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Because the church is called of God. It's a saint. These are, we are saints by calling. Because of that position, God bestows great grace upon us. Look at these words next in verse 3, beginning there, and we'll move on. After having told, told the church that of their holy position, sanctified, called of God, he goes on to say, because of this position, verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus. Now imagine starting this letter out in verse 10. Start, you know, if we didn't have this introduction, start reading this letter in verse 10, and we conclude back there in chapter 15. And 
how many of us, if any, how even the Apostle Paul, if he didn't have this knowledge of the position of the church, how many of us, even the Apostle Paul, would say, I thank my God for you. I thank my God for your divisiveness, for your immorality, for the way you treat your husband, your spouses, for the, the litigation you bring against each other, for the way you abuse the Lord's table. I thank my God always for you. None of us would ever say that if all we looked at was the sin. But the Apostle Paul introduces us to grace, which is greater than sin, here in these first nine chapters. And he says, I thank my God always concerning you, you, even Corinthians, you. I thank my God always concerning you, not because of anything in you, but what? For the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Now the Apostle Paul could go on and give a a listing of all the variations of grace that was given, the soteriological graces, the eschatological graces, in other words, the graces of salvation, the graces of future hope, the graces, uh, graces of day-to-day living that God gives us. But he focuses on two here. Two graces that I think was very important for this church in the condition it was. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. That, here are the two graces, in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge. The first grace that they were enriched by having been possessions of God, that they were enriched in speech and in knowledge. This we call revelation. This church was given the person of the Holy Spirit to illuminate their minds, to understand the Word of God. In all speech and in all knowledge. And when you're dealing with something, right Clyde, when you're dealing with a client, counseling them, you need the enrichment of not just speech, but also knowledge, don't you? If you want to help them. Paul knew that the greatest grace this church had because of its poor condition was this gift of revelation from God, the Word of God, that now would enable individuals who were involved in sin in the church and in its divisive practices, the grace of God in all speech and knowledge through the Word of God would give them the opportunity to be able to talk with one another, counsel with one another, Forgive one another. They had the gift of knowledge and, 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 and speech. And every church has that. It has it in the Word of God. That's why churches don't need to divide. They don't need to be hurt by everything. We have godly speech that we can communicate with each other. Godly knowledge that we can understand each other's problems and so forth. And work them through. And evidently the Corinthian church exercised some of that speech and knowledge because by the time Paul writes his second letter to them, there are individuals who heard the right things and gained the right knowledge to do something about their sin. And Paul then goes on in the second letter and commends them for such Reconciliation activities. Every church has been given the gift of speech and knowledge in the Word of God. And that can help 
us with any problem we face to conquer it in the Lord Jesus. The second grace here, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed to you, that so that you are not lacking in any gift awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The next grace that particularly was given to Corinth, it's given to every church, but particularly Paul points it out here, is the grace of a living hope. The hope of Jesus Christ. A taste through the spiritual gifts that are given to the church of the coming Lord Jesus Christ. And I wonder why it is, or I should say, I shouldn't wonder why it is that some churches lose their hope. Lose their focus. Lose their vision. Because they're not exercising the gifts that God has given them. These spiritual gifts that make up the body life. They are to stimulate us and give us a taste of the coming Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example. When I grew up, Pennsylvania Dutch family, okay, I've been blessed with two women that can cook. I've got to move ahead here. I've been blessed with two women that can cook. My mother, who cooked wonderful Pennsylvania Dutch dishes, and my wife, who's Italian and can cook Italian dishes, and now she's launched off into these ethnic dishes. And some of them are really interesting, to say the least. Uh, anyways, great cooks. So I'm going to focus on my mother this morning. My favorite dish growing up was chicken pot pie. And when my mom began to make that, she'd start in the morning, get a chicken, throw it in water, season it up, you know, put some onions and celery and carrots and stuff in and cook that chicken off. I started to smell that. And in the morning I would say, chicken pot pie is coming. Well, throughout the day she'd pick the chicken, of course. You know how it goes. She'd pick the chicken put the meat to the side, throw in some potatoes and more celery and carrots and onions and stuff, cook off some, um, some hard-boiled eggs, and slice them up and stick them in, put some seasoning in, put the chicken back in. Then she'd make her dough in the side and cut these little squares out. And then when the water, the broth would get rolling, she'd throw the squares in. And soon I knew I could smell all those ingredients rolling along in the broth. And soon I knew it would be chicken pot pie set on the dinner table. But before that, my anticipation was great. Before that, she would always, about maybe a half an hour before it got done and before she was ready to set the table, yell, Davy! And I'd come a-running because I knew she had my taster bowl ready. She had a little bowl for me to taste whatever she was making. And I'd walk in there and she'd fill that little bowl with some of the chicken pot pie. She said, now go and wait for dinner to get ready. And she knew that I was anticipating this wonderful chicken pot pie being set on the table. And I'd eat that, and I'd just visions of that pot pie and, and the bread and everything on the table would start to come to mind. God gives His church tastes as we eagerly await the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know how He gives us tastes? Exactly the way it says here, through the spiritual gifting of the church, the grace of gifting. So that when you hear a gifted preacher or teacher in this pulpit or in that Sunday school room, you're getting a taste and awaiting eagerly of the coming Lord Jesus Christ who is the ultimate teacher. When you get a taste of someone who's gifted with mercy in this congregation by going out and helping others, you're getting a taste of the coming ultimate giver of mercy, Jesus Christ. When you get a taste of someone who gives, 
and has that gift of giving to the church, you're getting a taste of the coming Jesus Christ who gave everything to His church. You see, the Apostle Paul can only say these things to the Corinthian church in light of their position in Jesus Christ. They were called, they were sanctified, and because of that position, they were gifted, they were graced with speech and knowledge, and an understanding of the wonderful way that God has put His church together. It's from that platform that the Apostle can then go on and correct them, admonish them, chastise them, discipline them, having realized the position they're in and who they should be and who they're not. You know, we live in a consumer America that prompts all kinds of different statements about the church today. I don't go to church anymore. I don't like it. I can't stand so-and-so, so I'm leaving the church. It doesn't meet my needs anymore. And I guess, yes, to some degree, there are those rubs in the church. But if all the rubs that we experience in the church, if we let them blind us to the truth about the church, the church will die. Locally, in a sense. And we can't let that happen. Listen to this. Even though we all groan in sin, The church is called by God, cleansed by Christ, accepted by the Father, graced by the Spirit, sanctified. And because of this lavish position in Christ, we are more than hopeful and victorious as we await the realization of our perfection. The church is victorious. The church will be glorified with Jesus Christ. And we are a reflection now of the church. How good a reflection are we? Three applications here that I leave you with. Don't throw the church under the bus. Don't make those statements that most of the America is making today. Don't throw the church under the bus. Lift it high. It's exalted. It's called and sanctified in Jesus Christ. Yes, problems while we are here on earth. But all the power to make the church what it will be are here in the church now. Secondly, don't throw Christians under the bus either. Individuals. Paul didn't, and I'm so glad he didn't. He reminded them of who they are. Called and sanctified. He reminded them their position in Christ. He reminded them of the grace that God will give them to get things straightened out. And that's the counsel we need to give to one another when we find a brother or sister suffering, sinful, plagued by the world. And thirdly, here's the positive. I gave you two don'ts. Do realize that even though we are all we just talked about, called, sanctified, so on and so forth, never take it for granted. It was all established by the blood of Jesus Christ. Make sure that we give Him all the glory. And don't. Let us not, oh Lord, let us not be throwing water on the church, the flames of the church. John Bunyan once had a vision and a dream. 
And he said in that vision he saw this pillar of fire against the mountainside. And people were running to it and trying to put water on it to put it out, to extinguish it. He wondered why the fire never went out. He walked around the side, looked at the back, and he saw that coming down from the mountain was this flow of oil into the fire to keep that fire flaming and glowing. Brothers and sisters, that fire is the church of Jesus Christ. That oil is God's spiritual power that He gives to the church. Let not one of us carry water to that fire and try to put it out. But rather, let us catch some fire brands and run with them and light up the dark world that we live in. May God give us help. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the church of Jesus Christ. We are the church. Oh Lord, help us in this dark age of America. In this pagan country. In this time when people are turning away from the gospel and the church. May our fire burn as bright as you make it. May we have a high view of the church, defend its glory, and hold forth its banner to every unsaved person we come in contact with. Lord, your church is one foundation, grounded in Jesus Christ. May we be truly representatives of that foundation. In Christ I pray. Amen.